0: As we move into a new era of revitalized US alliances, the vital and close-knit relationship between the United States and Europe has been battered and bruised. With several policy areas in need of urgent attention, it will take much more than good rhetoric and diplomatic gestures to make real headway. What is the future of transatlantic relations and how can this partnership stay relevant in the 21st century? Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, the president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program tonight features Dr. Karen Donfried, president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, joined in conversation with Joanna Ridgway of Santander Bank, who serves on the council's board of directors. This program is part of the 2021 International Perspective Series, which the Council has been hosting in partnership with the American Jewish Committee, Dallas, for over 20 years, identifying critical issues in US foreign policy and bringing them home to North Texas. The Council is incredibly grateful for all of its supporters. The 2021 International Perspective Series is generously sponsored by our friends at Haynes & Boone. Special thanks to council board member, Larry Pascal for your continued leadership and support of our mission. We have a full schedule of virtual programs. So remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. So next Tuesday on the 16th at 6 p.m. Central, Jim Falk will moderate our conversation with legendary retired ambassadors, Ryan Crocker, Robert Ford, and Ann Patterson, as well as the author of The Ambassadors, Paul Richter. Presented in partnership with the Middle East Institute and my former employer and beloved organization, the World Affairs Councils of America, this program will highlight some of the nation's most experienced diplomats in the region, having served everywhere from Syria, Egypt, and Iraq, to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Head to dfwworld.org to register for this complimentary program. And now I'd like to welcome regional director of AJC Dallas, Joel Schweitzer, to say a few words. Joel, thank you for your continued partnership and support of this series. I look forward to what our two organizations will accomplish together in the future. Thanks very much and off to
1: you. Thank you, Liz, and I haven't had the pleasure of uh, officially, publicly welcoming you to Dallas, so allow me to do so at this time. We're, we're just thrilled to have you at the helm of the World Affairs Council. As, uh, as everyone in, in attendance is likely aware, it is without, uh, without question the finest of the World Affairs Councils in the, in the country, and we're, we're excited to have you uh, taking the lead role. Um, AJC, as those of you who have uh, attended these programs before know, is a 114-year-old human relations and advocacy organization. We were, uh, we, we've were we been known commonly as the State Department of the Jewish People, and in fact, in about three weeks, we're going to be saying our farewells to, uh, to Jim Falk at a diplomatic Seder, a mock Passover Seder that will be attended by members of the Consular Corps and other, uh, and other interfaith and intergroup interlocutors that we work with. And so uh, this is a very natural partnership because of AJC's uh, uh, status working with foreign leaders and heads of state and, uh, and its respected voice in the halls of government around the world. We do hope you will join us for a very special event on June 3rd our community of conscience coalition, which is a coalition of diverse uh, leaders from all walks of life, from different faiths, from different ethnicities, from both sides of the aisle that are committed to advancing democratic values, to uh, enhancing pluralism and elevating civil discourse in uh, in our country, something that is certainly needed now more than ever On June 3rd, our our first annual award for bipartisanship will be presented to uh, Congressman Colin Allred and Van Taylor. We will also have several mini panels, including one uh, featuring Lindsey Lloyd, uh, Director of the Human Freedom Initiative at the Bush Institute in conversation with me and uh, and Nicole Bibbins-Cicada of Freedom House, the executive director at Freedom House. And you can get more information by watching our Facebook page at AJC Dallas or emailing dallas at ajc.org. It is my pleasure to hand the reins over to Larry Pascal for, uh, and just express my appreciation for the sponsorship of Haynes and Boone making tonight's event and this entire series possible.
2: Larry. Thank you, Joel, so much. And of course, thank you uh, to the AGC for your ongoing support of the World Affairs Council um, and this event. And also, I like the second uh, big Texas welcome to uh, Liz as well. Um, our guest today, uh, Dr. Karen Donfrey, is president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, a nonprofit organization dedicated to strengthening transatlantic cooperation through policy analysis offering fellowships for next generation leaders and supporting civil society. Dr. Donfied is extremely qualified to speak to us on our topic today. She was special assistant to President Obama and senior director for European affairs on the National Security Council at the White House. She previously served as the national intelligence officer for Europe on the National um, Intelligence Council. She is also a senior fellow at the Center for, for-, for European Studies at Harvard University and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the American Council on Germany. She earned her PhD and master's degree from the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a, master- a Magister or Master's from the University of Munich. Among her numerous rec- recognitions that she counts, Dr. Donfried has received the German Cross of the Order of Merit. Is an officer of the Belgian Order of the Crown and the Italian Order of Merit, and has received a Superior uh, Honor Award from the US Department of State for her contribution to revitalizing the transatlantic partnership. Our moderator today will be Joanne Ridgway. Joanna is um, Southwest Regional Manager at Santander Bank here in Dallas, Texas. Joanna's international experience includes corporate and commercial banking strategy development, asset management, corporate debt underwriting, project management, and marketing. A two-time TED Talk speaker, she serves on the World Affairs Council, Council Board of Directors and was a German Marshall Fund 2012 Marshall Memorial Fellow herself. Now over to you, Joanna.
3: Thank you so much, Larry, and thank you everyone for your warm introductions. Uh, Dr. Donfried, Karen, we're so happy to have you uh, speak today, and let's just kick it off. Let's set the stage for the transatlantic relationship, and would love to hear your thoughts on what key roadblocks exist to promoting that relationship, and also a report card on the Biden administration and what you would recommend they accomplish or try to accomplish in the first six months to a year of this
4: administration. Thanks so much, Joanna. It's really a delight to be here. And let me just express my thanks to Liz for the invitation. And Liz, congratulations on your new position. And Joel, I did not realize the heated competition there is among World Affairs Councils. You know, you're saying clearly Dallas is the best. And I have to say that you all could not have done a better job of picking a moderator than choosing Joanna. Because as Larry mentioned, one of the programs that GMF runs is a fellowship for next generation leaders. And Joanna, as mentioned, is an alumna of that fellowship program. So it's just a particular delight to be doing this. And Joanna, to your question about the state of transatlantic relations, I think we all know that the past four years were tumultuous ones in the relationship between the US and Europe. And former President Trump believed deeply that the United States had gotten a bad deal from its European allies. And two of the issues that he found most irritating were that not all of the members of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, spend 2% of their GDP on defense. And that's a longstanding NATO guideline that NATO members had recommitted themselves to in 2014 in the wake of Russia having illegally annexed a sovereign part of Ukraine when it annexed Crimea. So that was one real area of frustration for former President Trump. And the other was the trade balance between the US and Europe. And on both of these issues, Germany became the poster child because Germany is the wealthiest country in the European Union, and it doesn't spend 2% of its GDP on defense. And Germany runs a large trade surplus with the United States, which also really bothered President Trump. So that is the backdrop. And there are lots of examples we could give of real tension in those four years. And we're now at a place where Joe Biden, when he was running for office and since he has, stepped into the Oval Office has been very clear that his vision of America is back, a United States that's engaged globally, that a big part of that is how we work together with our allies. And so President Biden's focus is on revitalizing the transatlantic alliance and alliances in other parts of the world as well because President Biden argues that one of the unique attributes the United States has is allies. That we have these other strong democracies that share our values and also share our interests. So we should work together with them on meeting global challenges. And so that gets to the to-do list, which is pretty long. I will shamelessly flag a project that I was involved in last year. I co-chaired a transatlantic task force with Wolfgang Ischinger, who is a former German ambassador to the United States. He now chairs the Munich Security Conference. And he and I, we've known each other for a long time, and we felt that whomever was gonna win the US election in November it was really important to try to get the transatlantic relationship back on track. And so we brought together a group of Americans and Europeans and and tried to have a diverse set of perspectives and geographies and looked at what are the issues where we think the United States and Europe will be better equipped to meet those challenges if they work together. So the purpose of the task force was not to improve the U.S.-European relationship. It was actually to try to get important things done on the international stage. And we looked at six separate issues. Not surprisingly, we started with pandemics. That hadn't been in our minds initially, but (laughs) by the time we got to March of last year, it was clear that that was a key issue. So we looked at pandemics. We looked at economic growth. We looked at climate China, technology and security and tried to come up with really concrete policy recommendations. And I definitely think those six issues are at the top of the US European agenda. What we've seen President Biden do initially is first try to rebuild trust. And I mentioned earlier that Americans and Europeans share values and interests, and that's important, but fundamental to any alliance or any partnership is trust. And that trust really had been damaged. So we've seen President Biden take many actions to show that he brings a new commitment to issues Europeans care about, whether that's rejoining the Paris Climate Accord um, or setting aside some of the trade issues that have been roiling transatlantic waters in recent years. So I think we're poised now to do the hard work of trying to agree on policies and move out. So let me let me set the table with that uh, set of absolutely. Questions.
3: And I would recommend anyone participating here to seek out that report. Uh, it's, it's really fantastic and we can include it on the notes on the YouTube recording after this. Uh, But speaking to that, Karen, one thing that is so fascinating to me on the policy side is how Europeans and and the U.S., how we make policies for areas where we're aligned, but sometimes...
0: Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at, L-E-E-B at
3: DBU.edu. Our interests diverge a little bit and that China is a great example of that. Um, so can you highlight some of the things that the task force refers, uh, recommended? Because to your point, it really brought together bipartisan people from the US legislation side, as well as European policymakers. And I think this audience would be very interested in, in hearing some of those recommendations.
4: Thanks. I'd love to do that, Joanna. And I should actually note that one of the members of the task force was Will Hurd. So a former member of the House of Representatives from Texas. So Texas was represented on the task force as well. Um, And I want to pick up on a point you made because I think it's really important, Joanna. When we talk about allies, it does not mean that we always agree. (laughs) It means that we start from similar perspectives, but lots of things may determine different policy orientations, geography being a really important one, history, culture, all sorts of things. And that surely is true when you talk about an issue like China. The United States has a complex relationship with China. China is a very important economic partner for the United States. It's also an economic rival. Um, We have deep political ties, not only with China, but with other countries in the region. In fact, we have treaty allies in the Asia Pacific. So if you look at the US relationship with China, it is multifaceted and complex. For Europe, China primarily has been an economic partner. And for many European countries, they're dependent on exports and China has been a key market for those exports. So that economic relationship has dominated Europe's relationship with China. And it has led Europe to engage differently with China than the US has. And we've seen that difference over decades. And the US, there have been more competitive aspects of the US relationship with China than Europe has had because Europe's tried very hard to keep a harmonious relationship that doesn't get in the way of that important trade relationship. So you've seen these differences. I would say that over the past three, four years, Europe's relationship with China has changed more than it did in the preceding decades. Why do I say that? because for a very long time, Europe thought the relationship with China was about Europe going there and selling European products. And Europe started noticing things like the Belt and Road Initiative, where China very clearly was trying to, oh, there's a there you see the Belt and Road, was moving out and buying up strategic assets, not only in its neighborhood in Asia, but also, throughout Europe. So it bought the port of Piraeus in Greece and bought other strategic assets in European countries. And suddenly Europeans looked around and said, whoa, China is now coming to us. And we need to be more thoughtful about protecting assets on the European continent. Add to that Europeans looking at what the Chinese were doing to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or how China was cracking down on democracy activists in Hong Kong and there were really key human rights concerns that also were giving Europeans pause. So you see this change where Europeans are becoming more critical of China and in the United States where for a very long time, there was a desire to make China a responsible stakeholder. That goes back to the Bush administration and Bob Zell, like in that language of China's a responsible stakeholder. But I think for a long time in the United States, there was a belief and this very much informed support for China joining the World Trade Organization in the United States. There was a belief that if China liberalized economically, it would then liberalize politically. And you saw Americans saying, uh, we're not so sure that thesis is true because there's nothing to suggest China is liberalizing politically. So you saw hardening of attitudes in the United States as well. And that was certainly true in the Trump administration, but I think it's clear that the Biden administration also is going to pursue a much more assertive policy with regard to China. So the Venn diagram between the US and Europe when it comes to China, the overlap is much greater in 2021 than it was in 2015. So Mm -hmm. I do think there's an opportunity for us to coordinate at the least and hopefully cooperate on policy towards China. Now, what are the specific areas where we might do that? I think there's real opportunity in the economic area and the trade space because a lot of the things that we Americans are concerned about, like Chinese theft of American intellectual property or uh, how they're treating investment. Those are things we, those concerns are shared by Europeans. So I think there's gonna be a renewed effort in the World Trade Organization to say, hey, China, when you joined, you signed up to a certain set of responsibilities. And you're not holding up your end of the bargain. So, guess what? We're going to play hardball. So, there are a whole set of issues in that space. I also think we need to, you know, stepping back from specific issues like that, think about process. How do Americans and Europeans actually coordinate policy on China? I mean, you can do it bilaterally with President Biden talking to Chancellor Merkel or President Macron or Boris Johnson but we don't have a very good mechanism for working collectively with Europe. And at the tail end of the Trump administration, the European Union, their high representative for foreign policy suggested that he and then Secretary of State Pompeo set up a working group to facilitate coordination. In the task force report, we suggest that actually you need something at vice presidential level because every issue has a China dimension, whether it's trade, whether it's technology, whether it's climate. And so we need not only a whole of government approach in the United States, and you see that President Biden has tapped Kurt Campbell to be sort of the the Asia policy guru at the National Security Council to think holistically about US policy toward China. And our sense was that we needed to think holistically in the transatlantic relationship about how we're engaging in China, appreciating that many of these issues are contentious, but on an issue like climate, there's also a need to cooperate with China if we want to achieve big things at the global level. So all of those ideas are part of what you'll find in that task force report Mm -hmm. in terms of how we should think about China from the perspective of the transatlantic relationship. I really enjoyed the
3: task force uh, recommendations regarding the World Trade Organization and how it can be leveraged to to really further those those issues. Um, We have a question from the audience, and you touched on it briefly, which is a very important issue for our collective future, which is climate change. how what are the prospects for the biden administration to work with the eu in, in improving climate change policy i know we've rejoined the paris accord but um what if a new administration came in in 4 years and and exited that so what what can you, what would you recommend and what do you see as far as um working on that issue together yeah well
4: we really have seen the limits of executive agreements because Yes, the next president can undo them. And let me just use that to make another quick point, which is Europeans for the most part, not universally, but for the most part greeted the Biden administration with enthusiasm because they thought there was real opportunity to work closely on important issues like climate. But you also hear from European allies that while, President Trump wasn't re-elected, they feel that Trumpism is alive and well in the United States. And they say, so we don't know what's gonna happen in 2024. Who knows who the next American president will be? So you also see European hedging, where they say, well, we're not sure, we really wanna go all in with you Americans because we're not sure what's gonna happen in four years. And my view on this is they should go all in because if they wanna to try to make a difference, they got four years to do it. And climate is a great example of this. So you mentioned that President Biden has already rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement and therefore signed up to the commitments that are in that agreement. And you know, just to remind back in uh, COP26, there was this desire to um, boost commitments so that we could ensure achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. What we're hearing is that we need to be even more ambitious in what the the, the processes we're putting in place to be able to achieve these goals we've set for ourselves. So I think Paris is the floor, but there's real pressure both in this country and in Europe to do more. Um, Another really important piece of the climate Equation is building climate resilience into economic recovery. You know, we know that economic recovery is going to dominate the agenda, both here in the United States and in every European country, because of the hit we've all taken from this pandemic. And so, as we're allocating funds to economic recovery, it's really important that we build climate mitigation and climate adaption into that economic recovery. And you know we can use it also to boost investment in renewable technologies. Uh, we can cut potentially and eventually eliminate fossil fuel subsidies. And some of these things are controversial, but these are all part of the set of ideas that are in that task force report. And in putting forward those ideas, we tried to put something for everyone. So we knew that there were gonna be some ideas that some folks would say, no, we're never doing that. I don't support that. And other ideas that might have a broader consensus. So what we were trying to do there is give a menu from which policymakers could choose. Mm -hmm. What about the economic
3: recovery? There's a lot of data, significant articles being written about the she session, which is a term that was recently coined by Nicole Mason, um, just relative to the number of women that have left the workforce or reduced their hours in the workforce due to the pandemic. Um, That wasn't specifically addressed in the task force, because I think it was too early to see that but are you seeing that elevated in the dialogues you're having today? And, and what are some ideas um, you're hearing to address that?
4: Well, it definitely is something we're seeing as a, a really negative, uh, one of the many negative impacts of the pandemic. And I think you know, we were already aware that we didn't have gender parity um, in the workforce and that problem has been exacerbated because of the pandemic. And, you know, I'll just talk from a GMF perspective, you know, in our small way, we try to be mindful about any time we're doing a public event, thinking about, well, who are the speakers and who's being represented on that GMF platform. And I think we are doing better on the gender side, but then you look at race, you look at other indicators where we need to be more diverse in the conversations we're having around transatlantic relationships. I think the Marshall Memorial Fellowship, the program that you were involved in, that's a place where, because we manage the selection process, I think we've had terrific diversity of participation in that program. And I'd love to see that replicated across the organization. So I think each of us needs to start at home you know, within our own organizations, and then try to be ambassadors for gender parity, racial parity, diversity in all its forms um, as we move forward. And I think here in the US, certainly the murder of George Floyd last year was something that really woke people up on the racial equity front um, and just made us realize how much work there is to do across the diversity, inclusion, and equity landscape. Absolutely, and I can attest to the
3: diversity we've seen uh, having served on the Texas Selection Committee the last few years um, for the Marshall Fellowship and um, appreciate German Marshall Fund's support of the project I've focused on, which is corporate diversity in the boardroom. Um, so training Marshall alums on, on pursuing bor- corporate board seats. So thank you for that. And we've had a couple questions from the audience that, that are really fascinating, um, primarily focused around the... Um, rise in nationalism which we've seen obviously in the United States but also in Europe and how does that um, present a challenge to uh, a lot of the broader transatlantic or EU alliance?
4: It's such a great question and I, I'm reflecting on the, on the conversation we've had internally here at GMF about our tagline which is strengthening transatlantic cooperation and we always had assumed that we would be strengthening transatlantic cooperation in the spirit of the Marshall Plan. And here at GMF, we think of the Marshall Plan as arguably the quintessential example of enlightened self-interest of the United States and policymakers at the time saying, we need to help Europe rebuild after a devastating war. This is an act of benevolence. But also, this is very much in the interest of the United States, because these countries are going to be our major trading partners, and they're important allies, and as we see the Soviet Union taking off, uh, both the economic and the security aspect were important in the U.S.-European relationship. So it had both those attributes of benevolence and real self-interest. And the Marshall Plan is the quintessential example of the liberal democratic order the values that we share around liberal democracy, meaning it's not just about rule by majority, but it's protecting the rights of minorities. It's about rule of law, freedom of the press, rights of the individual. And we, for the history of GMF, have taken for granted that that's the world we live in. And that's the world that connects the US and Europe. And then when we saw the rise of nationalist populism in the transatlantic space, we thought, wow, you it never occurred to us that liberal democracy might not ultimately be the dominant governing system. And that was really striking because all of these things we've taken for granted for such a long time, we can't take for granted anymore. And absolutely it's a challenge on both sides of the Atlantic. So my argument is we also need to be united in terms of strengthening our democracies. And, you know, if you're looking, I think the question was specifically about Europe and there most attention has focused on Hungary and on Poland, both members of the European Union, both members of NATO. And Hungary, I mean, the most recent news on Hungary is in the European Parliament, there are parliamentarians are organized around party groups. And Orban's party group was the European People's Party, which is also the party group that includes center-right parties across Europe, including Chancellor Merkel's Christian Democratic Union. And there had been a lot of pressure on the European People's Party, this party group, to boot out Viktor Orban's Fidesz, his political party. Because people said, gosh, the road they're traveling on is not a road that hews to liberal democratic values. And we're very concerned about how Viktor Orban is undermining the rule of law and uh, undermining the free press in Hungary. And so this debate has been going on for years. In 2019, um, Fidesz was um, uh, blanking on, on the word, suspended, Um, And just last week, uh, Fidesz decided to leave the European People's Party because they felt they were about to be ultimately booted. Um, So that's really interesting because it suggests, that's one example that suggests the European Union may be wanting to get tougher on this and member states may be wanting to crack down. We also saw that happen in the most recent budget, which included this next generation Europe fund, which is essentially a recovery fund to help the members of the EU build back better, to coin Biden's phrase, after the pandemic. And for the first time, um, there were um, sort of, uh, um, you know, basically you can only get that funding if you're living up to commitments you made around rule of law and the, the nature of your democracy. This was very distressing to Hungary and Poland, and they have the ability to go to the European Court of Justice and question this. So it's not gonna go into effect immediately, but I do think it will go into effect. So again, we're seeing the European Union starting to take measures to make clear that if you're a member of the European Union, you have to live by these values around liberal democracy. So we'll see, Um, you know, in Poland, you have most recently, basically it's now uh, illegal to have an abortion in Poland. It's a very Catholic country. The current ruling party uh, takes that religious faith very seriously. So there have also been real concerns in Poland about crackdowns on um, freedom of the press as well. So we're seeing some of these trends in different countries um, that I think mean all of us need to recommit to the values that undergird our democracies. And rather than just criticizing each other saying we need to work together to build stronger democracies. And, and there you see protesters mm-hmm. in Poland um, who are very, uh, continue to be very concerned about the legislation the government has put into place. So I think this is, this is a very real issue and we are going to be wrestling with it for some time to come.
3: Do you think that the January 6th event in the US, the insurrection, potentially undermines our work and our leadership in democratic initiatives worldwide, especially in states um, like Central Europe or or areas
4: that are kind of more emerging? There is no question. that the whole world was watching the assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And as someone who worked on Capitol Hill for 10 years, I was shocked. I never thought I would see that happen in my lifetime. And, you know, when you think about how it played out in Europe, let me just set the stage by talking about differences in how various European countries see the United States because I don't want to suggest it's just one Europe. And, you know, as you know, Joanna, GMF, the headquarters are here in Washington, and we have seven offices across Europe. So when there's not a pandemic, I travel a lot. (laughs) And I was always struck that when I would go to Paris and meet with interlocutors there they would say, you know, Karen, like he may be a nice person, but we think the United States has gone bad. This was during the Trump years. And we are doubling down on strategic autonomy because Europe needs to be able to act independently of the United States. This is not a new French view. <laughs> think of De Gaulle, but the French essentially doubled down on that strategy over the last four years. So, you know, strategic autonomy is sort of the French view. The Germans, while in many ways are, they're sympathetic to the French view, but they actually saw the change in the United States under Trump not as a structural change, but as a cyclical change. They thought this is a particular U.S. president and we're not giving up on the transatlantic relationship. We're going to exercise strategic patience because the United States, along with Europe, is our critical partner. And we've invested in this relationship and we hope that it will continue. So I kind of dubbed the German approach strategic patience. And then I would go to Poland and my Polish interlocutors would say, strategic autonomy, strategic patience, we Poles are all about a strategic embrace of the Trump administration. A, because we feel an ideological affinity to the Trump administration and B, because we have a big bad neighbor called Russia And we're not convinced that when push comes to shove, the French and the Germans are gonna be there for us. So we're doubling down on an American security guarantee. And the polls had some success with that, right? So the starting point for each of these countries is a different one. Um, And then, you know, when you think about where that puts them today, um, they're in a different place in terms of the relationship going forward. Now I've of course forgotten the original, tell me the question again. Well, just how, how, um, how our event on January 6th may affect, you know, the U.S. Right, exactly. So, you know, when January 6th happens, you know, the French are like, we told you so, you know, those Americans look at what's happening in their democracy. They are not reliable. Europe, wake up we got to build capacities to be able to act independently. And the French would be the first to say that they don't have those capabilities today. They got to spend more on defense. They got to build those capabilities. But January 6th supports that argument. In the German case, January six suggests to them that, well, maybe we should hedge. Like, we really want to work with the United States and we're embracing President Biden, but, hmm, you know, maybe we should hedge. And then the polls um, are saying, look, we just want America to guarantee our security. We care about an Article Five security guarantee. We are not going to speak about what's happening domestically in the United States. So I think the reactions to it are different. But I'll tell you, Joanna, I just recently did... Um, an event, actually with Wolfgang Ischinger, my co-chair of the task force, because he asked me to do this event with German high school students. And I was asking them, are you interested potentially when you go to university to study in the United States? And the United States is not at the top of their list. Because, you know, the United States is a little scary. They Mm -hmm. see what's happening here, and it seems kind of violent. And that's really striking. So the soft power appeal of the United States is being affected by this, right? The hard power advantage of the United States is affected by it, but also our soft power appeal is being undermined by those. And Those individual
3: relationships that are forged are so important um, to to the transatlantic relationship in general, and not just at the parent level, but um, as I know um, from participating in your program, we would be remiss not to gather your uh, viewpoint on what you anticipate um, the post-Merkel Germany looking like and consequences for U.S.-Germany relationships. Um, So I would love your view on that.
4: So this is a big year for Germany and for Europe and for the transatlantic relationship because Chancellor Merkel will end her 16th year in office. She is completing her fourth term as chancellor. And I find that so interesting because I think for many of us Americans, when we think about Germany under Merkel, we think about stability because of her (laughs) and the crises she's weathered and her sort of no drama approach to policymaking. And I think that that seeming stability masks important domestic political changes in Germany. So Merkel's first government when she came to power was what we call a grand coalition, a coalition between her center-right parties and the social Democrats, the center-left party. Um, And three of her four governments have been that grand coalition. The current government is also a grand coalition. But her first government, when you looked at the seats that that grand coalition held, it was like 80%, something around that. Today, it's just over a majority of the seats. Because what's happened in that 16 years is you've seen a growth in the number of political parties in Germany. Um, And it means that those two big parties have really lost on support. Merkel's done a very good job of keeping her center-right coalition popular, but the Social Democrats have really lost in popularity. So some people are predicting that the election in September will lead to a new coalition that we've never seen at the federal level, which is between Merkel's conservatives, though they won't be Merkel's conservatives anymore, they'll be the new chancellor's conservatives, uh, with the Green. And that would be really interesting because we've seen it at the state level in Germany, but not at the federal level. And so people think, wow, this would be, there would be a new dynamism in German policy because we've never seen these parties govern at the federal level. And that, according to polls today, looks like the most likely outcome. But as we know, polls aren't always reliable. And some people think support for the CDU, Merkel's party, there may be a little bit of a Merkel bubble that will pop as whomever is going to run for chancellor for the CDU runs and people realize oh right it's not Merkel anymore it's this guy and it's pretty clear it's going to be a guy we can talk about which guy it might be Um, and people also think there might be a green bubble that sort of in theory people love the greens and the policies they stand for but in practice as they get closer to the election people might reconsider and you could end up with an outcome where it's really hard to build a coalition because the vote is spread over so many different parties. So it's a really interesting election because it'll tell us a lot about stability in Germany. Um, And I should add, you know, the comment earlier about the growth of right extremism in Europe, we see it in every European country. So in the case of Germany, you have a party, the AFD, that recently was put under surveillance by the German office that protects the constitution. And Germany has different laws than we in the United States do on this because of the Nazi past. So they're much more concerned about right extremism and they will do things that we wouldn't do in the United States because we have a different history. But it was really striking to see the AFD which currently is the opposition party because the two big parties are in coalition. So like the AFD chairs the budget committee in the German parliament, this party is being put under surveillance. There's a court challenge to that at the moment, but it's really striking to see this in Germany. In France, France will have an election next spring. If Emmanuel Macron loses, he will lose to Marine Le Pen, So there's a far right challenge in France. So, you know, this is real. And this challenge to liberal democracy, we see it here, but we see it across Europe as well. So there are lots of issues at play in the German election um, that will be important for Germany's future, for the transatlantic relationship. And I worry a little bit that we're gonna get caught in our electoral calendars not being lined up. So we have a new administration here in the US that's ready to go, but if they don't have concrete policies to work on before June, Germany is gonna be in an election campaign. Then we may have a different coalition building process in Germany, and then we have elections in France. hope is that we really very quickly can get some concrete areas for cooperation that we'll be able to put in place before we get caught in these government transitions.
3: And the COVID pandemic certainly presents challenges to those aims, but do you see signs that that coalition is starting to happen? Are there, there, do you have hope to give us to that end?
4: that they're moving out on, yes, I I do. And, um, you know, we just, I mean, another recent development is that the Biden administration has been working with the European Union on some of the trade disagreements we've had.
2: Mm -hmm. And
4: one specific issue, longstanding issue has been the U.S. giving subsidies to Boeing, the Europeans giving subsidies to Airbus and, WTO ruled in our favor, so we put sanctions on Europe during the Trump administration, and then the WTO ruled in the EU's favor on Boeing <laughs> sanctions, and they put sanctions on us. Sorry, on, on we give subsidies to Boeing, they give subsidies to Airbus. So we have these dueling sanctions in place, and it was just decided last week that we're gonna suspend those sanctions, to give time for our negotiators to find a permanent solution to this. And my hope is that that's gonna to continue to some of the other trade issues, mm-hmm. steel and aluminum, for example, that have been mm-hmm. bedeviling the relationship. So I think we need to get that stuff cleared up. And then, um, I mean, simultaneously, I do believe that the administration here is working with its counterparts on China, on tech, on climate, on Russia to really be able to put in place some policies pretty quickly. We saw also the US and Europe have a coordinated approach to putting in place sanctions against Russia um, in the wake of the poisoning of Alexei Navalny and Alexei Navalny's most recent um, jail sentence. So we have already seen um, some common action in terms of the challenges that we're facing. Um, and I do think we'll see much more. There's no question that the Biden administration is giving priority to this. I mean in every foreign policy speech statement that President Biden has made, that Secretary of State Blinken has made, that Jake Sullivan as national security advisor has made, they have been trumpeting the importance of allies, the importance of revitalizing those relationships, and standing together to meet more effectively these challenges around the world.
3: We probably have time for one more question. We have a, a few from our audience that we may not be able to answer. So I apologize. We won't get to all the questions. And um, This has been a really exciting discussion. Um, but I, this one question I think covers um, a couple of items. But in America, we don't often think of Europe outside of Germany, France, um, you know some some of the main countries, but they're really they're Central Europe and the Baltic states. Uh, so can you speak to the future of that, those areas? How the U.S. is supporting those areas, and maybe some areas where um, Americans may not realize how important those areas are uh, to the transatlantic relationship and just
4: economic growth in general. Well. There, there are so many different reasons that those countries in Europe are important, even though we don't think about them all that much. Because you're right, when we think of Europe, it tends to be dominated by the big countries. Um, the UK, France, Germany, I think would be the big three. Um, I think increasingly, we're gonna be interested in Italy because of its <laughs> Prime Minister Mario Draghi, who already is proving to be um, very uh, skilled uh, on the international scene he had been president of the European Central Bank and has a lot of international experience. But to your point, there are the countries of Central Europe, there are the countries of the Balkans, um, there's Southern Europe, Greece, Spain, Portugal. Um, And that's just if we think about members of the European Union and members of NATO. There are also the countries of the Balkans and the countries that border the Black Sea, countries that that GMF is very engaged in. We have offices that our active grant maker is trying to help strengthen civil society in the Balkans and the Black Sea region. Um, Because the argument is democracy isn't just about having free and fair elections, it's about citizens holding government accountable. And if you're coming out of a long communist past, then you have to hone those skills. Now, why should we think also about those countries that aren't the UK France, Germany, Um, because, important for lots of reasons but let's go back to the conversation we had about china those countries matter for geopolitical reasons because china and russia have focused like a laser beam on those countries because Mm -hmm. many of those countries are economically more vulnerable than the uk france and germany and so take the example of greece you know when greece when when china invested in the port of piraeus It was in the dark days of the Eurozone crisis. And Greece was under real pressure to privatize some of its industries and assets. And Greece was looking to EU Europe, was looking to the United States for investors and couldn't find them. And at the time when China invested in the port of Piraeus, Greece was applauded for finding that investor. And I should say the Chinese seem to be running that port very efficiently. But what happened is the Chinese invested in a lot of this strategic infrastructure while we weren't paying attention. We've also been watching China and Russia use the tool of vaccine diplomacy. So Hungary has bought vaccines from China and Russia to inoculate their population because the EU was tapped to procure vaccine for the entire European Union and has not done a particularly impressive job of it. So we see how China and Russia are very actively engaging in those countries. So we need to have our eyes wide open about what is happening in all of Europe. And I would encourage anyone who's watching, if you're interested in learning more about the whole of Europe, GMF does a large number of events on a virtual platform. So you can be sitting in Dallas and you know just go online and participate in our events that cover any number of issues mm-hmm. uh, from from Ukraine to Serbia. To the more traditional topics of the UK, France, and and Germany. And I would really encourage you to do that because interesting and exciting things are happening in those countries, but also they matter in geopolitical and geoeconomic terms. I I would echo
3: that as well. I experienced that uh, as a Marshall Fellow visiting Serbia, uh, seeing the Chinese investment in, in management of a important infrastructure project. And that really struck, that was one of the main things that struck me on that trip was uh, how deep uh, China was investing in an area that no one maybe had been paying attention to. So I, I, I highly recommend um, your programming and, and programs and the Brussels forum is coming up. So I do recommend that everyone uh, visit gmfus.org uh, for upcoming events. And thank you, Karen, for being here. I've really enjoyed the conversation, the opportunity to interview you and wish we had much more time. But with that, I'll pass it over to Ray uh, to close the program. And thank you again for being here Thanks so much, Joanna.
5: Thank you, Karen, for dedicating your time to speak with us this evening. And thank you and Joanna for a great discussion. I'm Ray Termini with the International Perspective Series. IPS was founded by Mel Cusin and became a collaborative effort between DFW World Affairs Council and the Dallas American Jewish Committee. 2021 marks the 21st year of this successful series, and the first year that the international law firm of Haynes and Boone is the sponsor. IPS meets in May of every year to dis- to choose topics for next year's programs. We select issues that we believe will be of interest to our audience six to nine months following our meeting. We later invite speakers who are leaders in their fields to address these topics. Today's event was a sterling example of this process. The German Marshall Fund is committed to the idea that the United States and Europe are stronger together. We were indeed very fortunate to have Dr. Karen Donfield, its president, as our speaker this evening to share her insights on transatlantic relations. Again, I'd like to thank the World Affairs Council, AJC Dallas, and our generous sponsors at Haynes & Boone. Stay tuned for more International Perspective Series programming and register for future events at dfwworld.org. Thank you, and have a good evening.